I wanted to ask you guys a question before we get started. Building off of our weeks previous as we're going through 1 Peter chapter 1, how many of you stood out like sore thumbs this week? You don't have to raise your hand because you just stood out like a sore thumb. No, I'm just kidding. If you want to raise your hand, you can. But it's a bit of, I should have said it's rhetorical. But I don't mean like, you know, you knock the olive oil bottle off the shelf in the grocery store and they had to do clean up in aisle 13 and like 40 people came over and it's all eyes on you. But, but based on what we talked about last week, with going through the letter that Peter wrote to the aliens and strangers that were scattered everywhere, his warning was that if you do this thing the Lord's way, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. You're not going to be able to contain it. And so um, the the hope was last week is that that would provoke us to at least um, engage in what it means to be holy, what God's word says it means to be holy in a way that we can kind of relate to because holiness isn't necessarily something we can relate to. But we understood from Peter's letter that that's what we are supposed to engage in, is the same holiness that God is and demonstrated. We saw that from two uh, short verses in chapter 1, beginning in verses 15 and going into 16. Peter wrote to his readers, he said, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, holiness has a much deeper connotation than just what we applied a little bit on the surface last week. If you want to know about God's holiness, you have to start thinking about his distinction. You have to start thinking about his power, um, unequaled by any other God, small g. You have to see God's holiness playing out in the pages of Scripture. If you go back to the Old Testament, you're seeing um, acts of might and, and strength like rescuing the children of Israel from Egypt and parting the Red Sea, sending his prophet Elijah to, to call down fire from heaven so the 450 prophets of a false god had no choice but to sit there and accept defeat that their god was still asleep. He wasn't even alive. And God showed up in his might and strength and we see glimpses of a holy God when we see those kinds of acts. And so Peter is writing and said, he's quoting this Old Testament passage. He says, all of the things I'm about to explain to you and the expectations that I have of you as aliens and strangers living in a foreign place, even if they were from there, they were living a foreign lifestyle because of who they were, who they were called by. So Peter says, in that same way that God is holy, he is distinct he demonstrates his power. He demonstrates his, his uh, otherness. I'll invent that word, and I bet the theologians, you're going to see in 20 years, they're going to write theology books, the otherness of God. But it, it just gives you that thought of he's just so far removed and distinct from anybody else who wants to pretend. So Peter is bringing this Old Testament passage to light for these readers for a reason. He says, be holy as I am holy. And so we said that our entry point for the word holiness just at this point in the study is for us to think about the fact that being holy really does mean to be different. You can be different without necessarily being holy, don't get me wrong. But one of the biggest aspects of being holy is this willingness, you and I sort of surrendering our will to say, okay, I know what I'm about to do is going to make me a weirdo. For everything else that I'm familiar with. 
for the whole process that this outside world is going through, that this whole um, experience of what it means to grow up in America in 2016 or whatever the case may be, I am about to embark on something that's going to look really weird to the rest of the onlookers. And I think for you and I, I, I could talk to you until we're all blue in the face about what it means to be holy, you know, imitate the holiness of God. And, and we could skate by on a churchy understanding of that and be like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to be holy. I've been hearing this ever since I was a child or you guys at faith have been talking about this as long as I've been coming here. So I understand I'm supposed to be holy like God is holy. But I think when we key in on certain words that kind of cause some friction in our culture, it starts to really um, expose how willing we really are to be different, to go against the grain, to actually experience the effects of living a life that is unique than everyone else around us. It is not easy. It's not fun. And we teased those people last week that, that said, oh, I don't care. I want to be different no matter what. And they're kind of willing to, to stand out like a sore thumb in a way that it's, it's, it borders creepy or annoying. You know, I don't care. Everyone can look at me. I just want to because sometimes there's that danger. Peter went through this. We saw when he was uh, walking as an apostle of Jesus Christ physically with Jesus as he was probably that guy that we'd be a little annoyed by. We'd have enough of a respect because he was out there leading and doing things. I was like, man, I wish I had the guts. But at the same time, it's like, does he always have to be first? Does he always have to have the right answer? And so that happens. So just being different doesn't mean holy. But being holy means being different, if that makes any sense. I hope it does because it just kind of came to mind and spilled out of my mouth. So I don't know if that makes any sense or not. Last week we talked about how Peter said there's going to be various things that you're going to have to understand and engage in in order to live a different life. We only got to crack open one of those, and that was found in verse 13 where he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. We're talking about doing things differently. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked about the fact that there's a difference in mindset for the believer versus in the world. And I think it starts the very second that we put our feet on the ground every single morning. And I want us to have this image in mind that as our feet are kind of, depending on if you get out of your bed, the left side or the right side, or some of you might sleep standing up, I don't know. But as you get your feet out of the bed and onto the floor to have this mental image of like, what shoes am I putting on? Because Peter is calling his reader to engage their minds in something that is pretty uncomfortable and very unpopular. He says, prepare your minds for action. So as you and I swing our feet out of the bed, I guess you can tell which, feet, which way my feet swing out of the bed because I keep going over to this side. He's saying, are you putting your feet in boots, like army boots, where you lace those things up and you get ready to engage in the battle? Or are you putting your flip-flops on because you really don't want to do a whole lot today? Or you don't want anybody else to come and blow up your agenda or mess with your plans or anything like that. Now, you think about how different it would be for the mindset of a Christian to say, every morning when I get up, my feet are going in those boots, and I've got to lace them up. Now, we're not pretending that it's something we're excited about. We're not pretending that it's like we've had those three cups of coffee already, and man, I can't wait. Just come on, Satan, bring it on. Let's go. You know, we don't always feel like that. 
That's why it's an engagement of the mind. That's why Peter starts there before he's talking about emotion or, or will or any of those things. He says, engage your brain to say, okay, this day is not for me. If you want to stand out like a sore thumb to the world around you, just start using language like, well, today I am answering to a different commander or I am, I am obeying, uses that word in a little bit, I am obeying somebody with more authority than me. If you think about the difference that that would start to, maybe they won't express it, maybe you won't hear it out loud, but how shocking that would sound to somebody who's only ever heard that they are their highest authority. You don't need to waste your time living for the wishes and the dreams of others. You know what's best for you. You do what makes you feel best. You, know, you do what, what fits your style the most. You express you the way you know how to do. And so there's that encouragement to just answer to yourself. And you come into the scene and say, well, I'm really tripping over myself today, but I am trying to live for somebody else's authority over mine. Just that alone. It's gotten so dark in our day that you just do a little spark and it shines like a bright light. Peter is saying, when you get out of bed, do your feet go in your boots or in your flip-flops? The world's mindset is on vacation the ones who seem to win are the ones who are able to hang up their desk job at an earlier age than expected. You know, they've socked away money or they've won in a, uh, some kind of lottery or something like that. They are now entering into the good life. And in our culture and in our experience, those are the people that have done something right. They've won something. Now, I'm not against somebody, you know, working hard or retiring early or any of those kinds of things. Contrary to what this might sound like, don't focus on the word retirement as just you know, stopping uh, um, you know, one job and going into some other activities. But to sit there and say, okay, well, I want to get done early. I want to finish early. I, I just don't want the responsibilities anymore. That is the mindset of somebody saying, I deserve to every time I kick my feet out of the bed to put them in flip-flops. I want to take it easy today. I want to live the good life. And even though we don't all get to, and most of us don't get the opportunity to do that for real in terms of like physically relocating, living a vacation lifestyle for the rest of our lives, in our minds, it's what we desire. All the people that you work with, the people that are in your family around the Thanksgiving table and everything, it's all kind of undercurrent in their mind too. Wouldn't it be great if we could just put our feet up and stop with all this struggle? So Peter says the life of the believer, if you want to be a weirdo, and I'm going to put that in quotes, and it's a good kind of weirdo. If you're going to be a weirdo, you're going to engage in, I'm not hanging up my boots yet. I'm not done with this. I'm still in the battle. You can see how different, how strange that thought process would be. He says that we are to be sober or balanced, clear thinking. And we shared last week that he uses this warning in a couple of other occasions in his letter. In 1 Peter 4, he says this very sober warning. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Later on in chapter 5, he says again, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So our mindset isn't really in, in hoping that we can just take it easy today. Our mindset isn't in, well, I hope someone else does the battle. I hope someone else goes to war for me because I just, I don't know. I just don't have it in me today. 
Peter says the things are, things are starting to ramp up. They're starting to get more uncomfortable. There is an enemy that's lurking in that bush right around the corner from your house. And so if you play around with this, if you're not sober, if you're not balanced, then he's going he's gonna to pounce on you and he will devour you. He says, we don't have time for this because the end of all things is near. Now, that can sound pretty pessimistic if we're talking about how are we supposed to shape our thoughts and what are we supposed to think about. So that probably means, Brent, then that I'm supposed to say, well, you know, what's the point of leaving the house? He's just going to pounce on us anyway. Or, um, you know, maybe maybe the battle's already lost. If we just hunker down, stay safe, pray and sing Kumbaya, then we're going to be all set. You see, the, the, the other aspect of this that Peter presents for us is he says, fix your hope completely on the grace that is to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We of all people are not defeated. And so as we're anticipating, we're hearing the growl in the bushes. I can see the claws sticking out from underneath and I know he's ready to pounce. So is my, is my response as a believer in Jesus Christ who's trying to live this life differently, am I just tucking my tail and going back in the house and saying, I don't want to face him, he's scary. He says, of all things, we're to be hopeful because the one who will reveal himself is the one that we can trust. His promises will never fail. He hasn't failed yet. He's never going to fail in the future. So this is the mindset, the very different, the very unique thinking that believers in Jesus Christ engage in. It's a mindset that has this hope on something bigger coming. Our rescue will arrive. And even Jesus was our example. In, in Hebrews 12, too, it tells us that we can live for our future reward by keeping our eyes on Jesus. The champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy, here's the key, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. So the key in all of this, given to us by the example that Jesus left, is that he had his mind somewhere else. He wasn't just dislocated from the reality. He wasn't just preoccupying his brain. I don't feel the pain because I'm thinking about the beach or anything like that. He had his mind someplace else in some other time. And that time was, this will all be over and I will be the conquering king and all of my people, my true children, will be with me and will be worshiping and will be together So Jesus said because of the joy that was set ahead of him beyond the trial, he could endure the difficulty. It engages our mind. It starts with our thinking. So moving on just a little bit out of verse 13, verse 14 says this. It says, as obedient children, there's that word, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Uh, I don't mean to embarrass any of my kids or anything. My kids are like everybody's kids in this sense. If I tell my kids, I want you to do this, that, or the other thing, or I expect you to do this, um, assuming we still do that today, amen? Let's eat. Get that? Amen. Um, Assuming we're still comfortable with telling our kids what they're supposed to do as we help them grow up and mature into adults and prepare them for life and everything, um, you know, as I say that, what my kids always do is they go, thank you, Dad, for giving me a higher standard to attain to. <laughs> because you care for me so much, nothing would bring me greater pleasure than to see a smile come across your face for me having obediently done to perfection what you've asked me to do. 
Your kids do the same thing, right? Don't, don't be bashful. You can brag. You know, see, our kids, are they were born in the same bag of bones that you and I are born in. What you and I are born into with this inherent sin is an, an immediate resistance or rebellion towards authority that's been placed over us. So as soon as, even you can say it, can't you, you know, and I see moms do this all the time. It's the cutest thing. They try to explain in sweeter terms to their children why it's so important that they obey. Well, dads are over there going, I would have used a tenth of those words. But, but that's what m- makes the world sweeter is because our moms are in it. And that's why moms get the shout outs from the NFL sidelines, right? When the player scores a touchdown, I love you, mom. Why? Because you spoke kindly to me. So I guess dads, we could learn a lesson. But no matter how sweet we try to put it, no matter how much we try to encourage obedience, it's not something that comes natural in our children. It didn't come natural for us, and it still doesn't come natural to us as God lays out a higher standard, a requirement, terms of obedience. So Peter is saying, as obedient children, and instantly we go, oh, here we go again. What does he have for us this time? What am I doing wrong? What do I need to do better? And all that kind of stuff. So Peter's warning as obedient children. But what I want you to hear, and this isn't me just trying to put mom's sweet words on this. I want you to hear some hope in that one word, obedient. We have started living, we have adapted this cultural mindset that the thing that you and I struggle with, whatever it may be, for, for you it may be ice cream sundaes. We all know for me it's peanut M&Ms or something like that. So it could be, well, peanut M&Ms on ice cream sundaes now that I think about it. I'm, I'm back now. So, um, you know, whatever it is that we're struggling with, we have become so defeated by its repetition that we start to believe the excuses on the outside that that's just who we are and that's the way we're born. So if Peter is saying that you can be obedient through these things, doesn't that trigger a little hope in our minds of like, what are you saying? I could actually do the opposite? Not only does he say, does he say be obedient, he says don't be conformed to the former lusts. And we have a tendency to apply lusts in a, in a, in a sexual way and everything and stuff. So it's, it's important that we don't run away from that definition too much because we can, for the most part, relate to the lure and the pull and the physical kind of gravitational draw that that connotates for us. But it's not restricted to that. Whatever you and I are drawn back to over and over again, whatever you and I are tempted to give into when we're at our worst or we're at our best or whatever the case may be, that thing, that draw, that gravitational force is a former way of living for the child of God. Can you imagine how cruel God would be if he says, I want you to be obedient to do the, to, to do the opposite of the thing that I allowed you to be born with? How completely cruel. I don't have a better word for it. And yet Paul, Peter says to us, you can imitate, I mean, you can, you can live out your new life or you can choose to imitate your old. Let me see if I can explain what I mean by that. Uh, I remember being a teenager and I was driving, um, I was riding in, in the car with my father who was driving and I was a passenger uh, in the seat next to him. 
And um, I was apparently doing something that I just do without thinking about it. It's one of those just natural things that you do and and then someone points it out to you. I had I stuck my thumbs under my two fingers here. I know you're looking for meaning in this. You're not going to find any. I don't know why. I had somebody after the first service come up and say, thank you for saying that because I do this all the time. They you know, tuck their thumbs inside their grip like that. So mine was close, but I had my own variation. I stick my thumbs out almost like, got your nose, got your nose, you know, that kind of thing. But I didn't know I was doing it. My father looks over and says, you do that too? Do what? You stick your thumbs under your finger just like that. I, I do this kind of thing all the time, he said. I said, really? I said, oh, that's really weird of us. You know, why would we do that? I didn't even know I'd do it, you know, and I'd probably been doing it for years. But as soon as he said that, then I started paying attention to what I do. It's what made me think about it all these years later, because I probably still notice every time I do it just for comfort. It's like when, when my kids, if yours do this too, you know, when they're sucking their thumb, they hook their nose, <laughs> which is like the cutest thing in the world. But it's like, they suck their thumb and they hook their nose like this. It's like, why? And every time we say, why are you hooking your nose? They'd be like, I'm not. Don't know what you're talking about, you know, because they don't even realize they're doing it. When my dad pointed that out to me, not only did I start noticing what I was doing, but it got my wheels spinning because I was, I was turning into a full-grown man at the time. And um, I started noticing, here's this big dude, you know, and manly and all that stuff. And I started noticing the things I had started to inherit from him and my mannerisms that look just like his and all that kind of stuff. And so I just started paying attention to that. I know boys do that with their dads anyway, but it was really starting to hit home like, oh, wow, this is becoming real. (laughs) You know, now I have choices to make. Which pieces of him am I going to imitate? Which ones am I going to do differently And, and all that kind of stuff? And so I just started noticing my father's nature so much more because it was starting to show up in me. You hearing that? My father's nature was showing up in my life and it started to build me up in a way of like, oh, this is actually happening. I am becoming a man. Peter, in the next letter that he sends out, he says this in in chapter one, verse four, he says, and because of his glory and excellence, he's given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to underscore this, share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. You and I have inherited a nature that we couldn't have paid for on our own. We couldn't have ordered it even if we want. And it kind of just starts showing up in your life. You start to realize, oh, wait. God's actually active in me. How did I have the smarts to say what I just said? You mean I just resisted that temptation? That's not me. What's going on here? And you start to notice your father's nature is creeping up in your life and you start to want to imitate that more. Our new nature, this thing that has been reborn within us, desires to do the better thing. We've never had that before. Every time we did what the old man or what the Bible calls the flesh or the, the just, you know, the old world, the old man system that we were born in, every time we've wanted to, every time we did those things before, all we had to accompany it was justification. All we ever did was get better at our excuses for doing what we did. 
So, you know, in the past, before our new life in Christ, we just did those things and then we said, well, it's who I am or it's how I was made or it's what I saw my parents doing. And we just had a whole list of excuses. Peter, with hope, even though it sounds like this kind of um, instruction that we give to our, parents, our kids and they instantly respond with rebellion, Peter is delivering this very hopeful message that says, be obedient and don't conform to the old life that you used to live. And you, we typically want to respond to that like, oh, here we go. I'm screwing more things up again. Peter's saying, no, do you hear this? You do not have to be that person anymore. When Christ came into your life, you received and inherited a new nature, which gives you new ability not to do the old thing anymore. Going back to our sinful behaviors over and over and over again is much like what Solomon warned us in the Proverbs where he says in, in 26.11, as a dog returns to its vomit, sorry those of you that are anticipating lunch, so a fool repeats his foolishness. Is that not one of the more disgusting mental images you can conjure? If it's not, think about it for a second. Come on. Those of you that own a dog, those of you that have a neighbor's dog, you've seen that dog eat some disgusting things. Every time I say what my dog's eating, they're like, you have a lab, don't you? Yep. No discrimination in a lab stomach. Nasty thought, isn't it? That's the whole idea. When you and I go back to the things that we were saved from, that we were rescued from, we go back to those urges, what God sees is kind of like what you and I see when a dog goes back to his vomit and then he wants to come up and, and be all happy with you and lick your face. Mm. Those of you that know me really well are going, I can't believe he's talking like this. He doesn't talk about gross things. Well, I'm not eating at the moment. So... Do we not do the same thing for the Lord? We come in on Sunday morning and we're like, Lord, I love you. Jesus, be praised. And then we just run back to our stuff. We run back to the thing that is part of the old man or the old woman, the old things. And then we want to run right back on Sunday and be like, Lord, I love you. Jesus, be praised. And it's kind of like that dog after he just ate that stuff. I wants to come and lick your face. And God's like, oh, could you just wait a second? Let me clean you up a little bit. What Peter is saying is that when we go back to those practices, we are imitating who we used to be. It's no longer the expression of who we are, but who we were. You and I need to be like inside freaking out in praise about how encouraging that is. Because if we're being honest, we feel trapped into who we are. That's just who I am. Peter's trying to say, no, 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 that's who you were. If you're going to go back through all of these uh, struggles, if you're going to return to this sin and all that kind of stuff, what you're doing is you are practicing who you used to be that has no more power in who you are now. So the reality is we don't have to do those things. When we go back to that sin, in order for the believer to continue in that sin, there has to be an active disobedience. By suppressing the voice of truth, we're going to pack it down. We're going to push it. I know to do better. I just don't want to be bothered with that right now. Why? Because in some weird way, we feel more comfortable being that person. And before we think that that's too weird, 
were not really true. Just watch the life of the children of Israel as you're reading through the, uh, the Exodus account. Right? They're rescued from slavery. All leading up to their rescue, they're poor and, and oppressed and they're beaten and they're murdered and they're all those things. And then somebody comes along, pointed by God to lead them out. He comes out and leads them through miraculous intervention, the parting of the Red Sea, all that sort of stuff. And days removed from that rescue, as soon as their stomachs start to grumble, they start saying things like, it'd be better if we were just back there in bondage, in slavery. Why? Because we got our three squares a day and our two snacks. So I'm willing to trade the freedom that, yes, while it looks murky and uncertain, See if we can relate to this right now as we wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. While, while it seems like all I can do is wander around in this desert, my needs are being met. And there does seem to be somebody who's hearing the voice of the Lord. But you know what? It's just not cutting it for me anymore. Remember how good it used to be? There's a hysterical song out of the 80s by Keith Green. I don't know if you know Keith Green or not. Some of you may. But it's just simply titled, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. And he starts listing all the things that they, they would come up with of like, you know, there's only so much you can do with manna. You know, manna bagels, manna waffles, manna souffle, and all that kind of stuff. And, but those were the provisions of God. And they were like, we are sick of this already. It was good back there. And I wonder if it even occurred to them as it was coming out of their mouth when they say it was good to be a slave it was good to have our lives threatened every day. It was good to be under the weight of the oppression and working those 16-hour days and all that kind of stuff. But because their tummies grumbled, they said, but that's what we knew. At least we knew what to expect then. We do this, don't we? It's not just that they were morons. They were humans. They were people rescued by the power of God. And then as soon as it started getting a little uncomfortable, they said, well, we didn't really need that much rescue, did we? Are we sure we needed to follow this Moses guy? In order for us to continue in our sin, we actively disobey because the power is within us under the guidance and the, and the nature of God to resist that thing. But we actively say, but it was comfortable. It's what I knew. Waking up in a ditch every morning or staying in that abusive relationship or all those things. The things that pointed us to Christ, the things that rescue, rescued us out of a life of emptiness, now we start to miss. Because we're like those dogs that return to our vomit. Speaking for myself. So what's our hope? How are we supposed, if this is who we are, how are we supposed to be rescued from all this? And Paul says to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, he says, No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. If what we're saying is this life that we're called to, this holiness that we're called to, is to be in stark contrast to the life that we grew up and lived, so how are we supposed to engage? How do we stay ready? How do we stay involved? Because if we are fickle in our humanness, though we've been rescued by God's nature, how do we do this? Well, Paul says to Timothy, the way to do this is when you're engaged in the battle, when you're fighting in the streets of Fallujah, you're not looking at the, at the ice cream stands or the snow cone stands on the side of the street. 
you're worried about keeping down and, and, and keeping cover and watching your, your partner's back and staying alive and accomplishing the mission and everything because the battle is raging all around you and now you see it. It's not hard to be engaged when the bullets are flying over your head. But you know what? We're in 2016. We're in America. We're in, we're in central Maine. And, and while we individually and uniquely have our own sufferings, we have our own trials and our own testings. For the most part, we still have a choice of what we're going to do tomorrow. For the most part, we still have a handful of provisions that we could put our hands on if we needed to. For the most part, we still wake up with a choice in how we're going to live our life. We still have this struggle about when I get up out of bed, out of my comfortable bed in the morning, am I going to put my feet in boots or in flip-flops? So we, we live in relative or in general peace and safety. This isn't discounting the some of the turmoil that people are going through individually. And so our, our battle or our calling to engage in this battle, in this unique holy battle, is made all the more difficult by being surrounded by complacency because we have the choice. So Paul is telling Timothy, if, if you want to know who's engaged in the battle, see who's caught up in civilian affairs versus who's marching, who's fighting, who's firing back. The reality is there is a battle going on all around us. It's a battle in the spiritual realm. And we don't have to go too far to manufacture when it's already happening. And so doesn't it seem like the next step is then for us to say, okay, Lord, if there's a battle raging, if I have grown comfortable, if you have called me to live a unique life because you've called me to engage my mind and live by a different lifestyle, a different behavior, then help me to see the battle. So often we get caught in this trap that just says, if he needs me, he'll let me know. They'll point out to me what they need my help with. And the Lord's saying, it's all around you. There's a battle going on already. All you need to do is enlist. And when you enlist, the thing that keeps you engaged is the voice of your commanding officer. So as we wrap this up, let me just put it this way. I think the reason why it's still in everyone's best interest, not just some uh, preacher's uh, goal to get more people to say, all right, I'm going to do what that sermon said. But I think the reason why it's in everyone's best interest, if we're being honest, to listen to the voice of the commanding officer and engage in the battle is because the, get, the battle is what gives us purpose. The, the complacency, the lethargy, the, the not being engaged in any kind of a battle, not having anything to move, no territory to conquer, we're empty, we're aimless, we're bored. And so even on the surface level, this battle that the Lord's calling us, calling us to starts to give us a sense of accomplishment. It ties us in. But, you know, you know in reality, a lot of organizations can offer that too. So I think it goes even a step deeper than that. The commander's voice or the commander's goal is to make us successful. He has a goal of winning the battle and he wants to bring us along in it. He wants us to be victorious along with him. And then part and parcel to that is that he is the only one with the strength and the ability and the skill to keep us alive. Hang tight on me. I, you do what I tell you to do and we're going to get through this. It's that kind of language that we hear from soldiers. And our commanding officer is saying, follow me and follow my steps and engage in the battle and, and engage in what's happening right before your eyes. If you listen to my voice, we're going to come out of this alive. So perhaps what we need to do is to trust the commander more. 
perhaps what we need to do is trust that this battle that he's calling us to is really what we've been craving all along. We just haven't recognized it. And maybe we need to trust that he wants us to be useful in the fight, that we will actually accomplish his purposes through our obedience. And then we can trust that he's the only one that knows what we need. So I don't know how else to say it. I don't know how else to preach this message to myself because every single morning as my feet are swinging out of the bed, I just want to put flip-flops on. I've got to be honest with you. And it's only until I'm in the fight somehow, whether it's thrust upon me or the Lord breaks through my humanness and engages me in the fight, that I start to acknowledge this is what I was made for. I don't care how tiring that was. I don't care how scary that was. I was supposed to be there doing that thing in the battle. And so I don't know, do we just wait for the circumstances of our country to get worse and then all of a sudden it means something? Or do we take Peter's advice and start ramping up for the battle now while it's brewing, while it's, it's marching towards us? I hope we choose the latter. I hope that we start preparing now, that we start engaging in the disciplines because we don't really have the luxury of choice at this point. What else are we supposed to do? Not obey the scriptures? Where else have we found life? What are we supposed to do? Not serve the needs of those that are around us? I mean, who else are we supposed to give our lives to? We've tried giving it to ourselves and it's let us down. When we start looking at this like, hey, I'm enlisted. I've got no other choices. I can actually start moving forward and find this is what I was made for all along. So I'm going to ask Jim if you would come up. Would you all stand and close out our time with a word of prayer? question that comes to mind is what have we been holding back from stepping from where we are closer to the kingdom us that have been saved oh God for a long time we can be like old wineskins and not be reaching out to the young and helping them and drawing closer to your presence oh God May the power of your Holy Spirit, O oh God, if there is somebody here that doesn't know you, hasn't yield themselves to you, O oh God, that they do it today. That they not walk out of this building realizing the fight is all theirs, that you're standing beside them to help them, that where they are, you are there also. We pray for our young people, O oh God who, when we look at them, today we see the struggles that they have. We lift them up to you. Pray, oh God, that you'll protect them. Help each and every one of us to pick up the word, oh God, and to read it and fill our hearts, mind, and souls with your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.